Thanks for joining us, everyone, today for the Safety and Health webcast. We'll be starting in about two minutes. Thanks again for joining. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the Safety and Health webcast. We'll be starting the broadcast in about one minute. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Enhanced Human Performance by Mitigating Brain-Centered Hazards, sponsored by DECRA Organizational Safety and Reliability. My name is Barry Botino. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thank you for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first, I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's session, we'll have a Q&A with our audience. To ask a question at any time during today's presentation, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. You don't have to wait until the end to ask your question. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible today, but because of the large number of attendees, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions today will be forwarded along to our speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. Also, DACRA OSR has provided a couple of unique resources to share with our audience members. You can find both an ebook and an exclusive article released today just for our webinar attendees by clicking on the Resources button. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Don Groover and Rajni Walia. Don is a Senior Vice President at DECRA OSR and has helped hundreds of clients from around the globe in a wide range of industries prepare, prepare for and implement successful change systems. Rajni is a Principal Consultant at DECRA OSR. For more than a decade, she's been leading performance management, organizational assessment and development, and human error reduction consultations, all with a focus on fostering strong performance reliability. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into our presentation today. Don and Rajni, whenever you're ready, take it away. Thank you, Barry, for the warm introduction, and thank you to Safety and Health and the National Safety Council for hosting this webinar. Don and I are delighted to be here with you all to share our expert insight on how to enhance human performance by mitigating the hazards associated with the natural functioning of the human brain. It is a topic that we thoroughly enjoy. And with that said, I'll throw it over to you, Don. Thank you, Rajini. Thank you, Barry. 
Uh, good day, everyone, and really appreciate you taking this time to, to join us on the webinar. Uh, before I start uh, discuss the, the things that we'll be talking about in the webinar, many of you might not know who DACRA OSR is, uh, DACRA Organizational Safety and Reliability. Um, we are a, a safety consulting organization that helps organizations move closer to world-class safety, and we do that by helping leaders more fully demonstrate a passion for people with a, a, a heavy emphasis on moving from a, a preventing injuries culture to controlling and, and understanding exposure. We help organizations align processes and systems so that they support the objectives that they're trying to meet. And then we also work on increasing the, the acceptance of change in an organization. And we do that, we, we work across all levels. Uh, we work with executive leadership, we work with managers and supervisors, and then we, we work with the workers themselves and, and, and then working on the systems. When we, we're asked to help an organization, there typically are five areas that uh, people come forward with. One is they, they want to improve or enhance their culture. Uh, second is they, they really are focused on injury reduction and overall injury reduction. Uh, related to that, uh, oftentimes we're asked to come in and look at elimination of uh, serious injuries and fatalities or uh, addressing soft tissue injuries. The fifth area that we're, we're uh, asked to come in is, is on this issue of controlling brain-centered hazards. And that, that's what we're going to spend our time today on is talking about brain-centered hazards. And we're going to drill into uh, three of the seven uh, brain-centered hazards. And we want to have that conversation as it relates to what I think we're all really interested in is this concept of situational awareness. Uh, how do people stay present in the moment and, and understand the exposures uh, and the changes in environment that they're experiencing and how do those how do they react to those changes? So as we as we go through today, we are going to talk. Uh, we're going to drill down into all seven brain center hazards, but we're going to drill down into uh, vision, memory, and fast brain functioning, and then we'll wrap up the conversation around increasing situ situational awareness. Now we we are going to helicopter up higher uh, and talk about human performance reliability at a more global level, that is, what does it actually take for an organization to have reliability in, in human performance? And it's not as simple as fixing employees. It, it, it really does require a, a holistic approach. The, the thing that's interesting about uh, human performance reliability is that we, we really underestimate the number of mistakes that we make and, and how frequently we make mistakes. I remember when I was taking a math class, um, there was a problem that, that when, when I got the, the test back, the professor wrote that I got the answer right, but all of my calculations that I shown were wrong. And now, if you think about that, I got the right answer, but none of the work that I did actually should have led me to the correct answer, is an example of there were mistakes made, but it wasn't life-threatening. Um, and we, we lack data often on understanding that perspective. I mean, if I would have just written in the, the correct answer and not shown my work, and not had someone point out to me that, yes, you got to the right endpoint or what you would consider a successful endpoint, but your logic was wrong or there were critical steps missed in that process, I would have never known it. And that's what's interesting about error is many times we're, we're not even, we don't even recognize that uh, we were lucky. And so, as we talk today, what, what we really want to focus on is thinking about those times where um, we need to more fully understand the outcome and whether that outcome was the result 
of the good work that we did or was or were we just lucky and so this idea of understanding weak signals understanding the this issue of chronic unease those are important concepts relative to a an individually individual staying situationally aware so that as we as we think about human performance reliability our definition of that is accomplishing a task in accordance to an agreed upon standard of accuracy, completeness, and efficiency. And uh, Raji, I know you'll say a little bit more uh, in about this, but if you think about that definition, the standards of accuracy, and, and oftentimes we don't expect 100% accuracy every time. We expect a certain level of completeness, and then we put in this uh, caveat about efficiency. We expect that task to be completed in, a, in an expedient manner. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, Don. And I think the, the, other, the other point to make here is that this definition is, um, is great and but what it does what it assumes is that the standards will in it themselves be accurate and will be designed in such a way that enables people to have to do their job thoroughly and efficiently so we will definitely be talking about that in a little bit but keep that in mind as we kind of go through the slides um, that it is in accordance with the green approach standards of accuracy but sometimes those standards are flawed and sometimes the systems and, and uh, systems and support that we have is, is flawed. That's a great point. I mean, if you if we understand people are going to make mistakes, and I mean it's inherent in us. <laughs> we have to embrace that uh, conceptually, especially in the area of safety, to think about the fact that people are going to make mistakes, and it's also people that that write standards and write procedures, and if we're going to make mistakes. That's going to happen in that process also. And Don and Rajni, that brings us to our first poll question of the day. We want to learn a little bit more about today's audience. Uh, so for our audience out there, we want to know from all of you about your knowledge base when it comes to this topic. We'll give you about 60 seconds to choose from one of the five possible answers today. And as the poll appears on your screen, take a moment to complete the following statement, choosing the answer that best describes you personally. And the question is, my understanding of how brain-centered hazards impact human performance reliability is blank. And the choices for everyone are non-existent, low, you've heard about the topic, good, you understand the issue but are unclear how to address it. Very good. You understand the issue and have some ideas on how to minimize it. And finally, excellent. You have a deep understanding on hazards and how to minimize them. We'll give everyone about five more seconds or so to submit your answers to the poll. We're getting some great feedback so far, so thank you for all your votes. And now we'll go ahead and close out the poll, and let's go ahead and take a look at our results today from our very first poll question. And it looks like we do have a, a, a varied audience today, uh, Don and Rajni. Our most popular two answers are a good, understand the issue, but unclear on how to address. And just behind that is low, I've heard about the topic. Uh, so Rajni, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts about um, how our audience members are describing themselves today? Yeah, so very, very, it's very interesting. And thank you for all for answering the question. So you can see there the vast majority are either good or low. And, you know, that's quite typical of, of a lot of the people that we work with as well. So they, they understand there is an issue, but they don't know how to address it. Or they've heard about, um, about human performance reliability. They know a little bit about the brain, but they don't know quite exactly how to address it. And I think, you know, for the 11% that are very good, that's excellent. And for the excellent, that's excellent as well. So uh, living in 2019, as we continue to progress on automated technologies and the roles, we, and roles continue to get more and more complex and technical in nature, we really need to understand these hazards. Life in a lot of ways was simpler 30 years ago. And um, now we have access to machinery like fMRIs that, that allow us to have more deeper understanding of how the human brain works. 
Now at DECRA, we have applied recent neuroscience research to the workplace and have identified those seven hazards that Don uh, briefly mentioned that everybody is, in, everybody is extremely vulnerable to. And those seven are uh, fast brain functioning. Now Don's going to talk a little bit more about this, but what I will say is that we've probably all heard of the phrase, we're creatures of habit. And what we know now is that that's actually very true. And in fact, 40, 50, 40 to 50% of what we do, our day-to-day -day behavior, that is, is driven off habit. So that statement, creatures of habit, is actually very true because that's what we do. So if you think about the classic example of driving, when you first learn how to drive, for a lot of us, it was probably a scary thing. For a lot of us, it might have been an exciting thing because it's new, it's novel, it's different. So if you fast forward however many years you've been driving, say five, ten, even a year later, you've probably had the experience of going to say you needed to exit exit 115 and you get to exit 125 and not even realize that you missed that many. Or you get from point A to point B and not realize how you got there. And that's a very scary thing. And what that's telling you is that now driving has become a fast brain functioning activity. So you're reliant on your, your habits to basically drive you to, from point A to point, to point B, so to speak. Now, visual recognition, I'm going to touch on this a little bit more, but what I will say here is that our eyes will deceive us. And, if, and it deceives us all the time. And I'll explain more in a little bit, but just keep that in mind as we kind of go through it. Divided attention, we know that the, we know it for a fact that the human brain has the inability to be able to multitask. Now, again, in 2019, that's a, that's a significant challenge for us because we live in an on-demand society. If our phone rings at 2 a.m., we have a temptation to answer it. If we're in the middle of something and it's a, it's quite, it's a critical task of any sort and we get disrupted, well, we attend to that disruption and then we, we tend to lose our focus of thought or train of thought. So a lot of people think they can divide their attention efficiently and accurately. Well, you actually can't. What's proven is that we're able to toggle from one task to another, but we cannot effectively do two things at one time. And if you think about the workplace, you think about a lot of the control rooms, they often have three or four uh, screens that people are having to attend to, and it's next to impossible to be able to attend to everything. Memory is another one that we'll be talking about in a little bit, but what I will say is how we encode information and how we recall it isn't in the exact same way. So we may have, if, we're, if you're expecting, if you have a critical task and there's, say, 10, 12, 20 steps to follow, you can't effectively ask people to remember all of those because we know that how we remember information is different to how we encoded it. And if over time we have developed some unhelpful practices or learn stuff through tribal knowledge, well, we know that you know, those, all of those standard operating procedures that we have, well, we're less likely to follow those steps. So consider that. Now, social think, we're not going to explore much today, but I, I would say if you have an organization that has more than one employee, you should be concerned about this. Now, the social think um, is, is, uh, is associated with the social brain. Now, the social brain is what drives individuals to not speak up when they should, not say something when they see something, and so forth. So, again, urge you to understand what this is, because if you want people to effectively have conversations, if you want people to stop each, other's, when, each other when they see a risk, well, you have to have an understanding of how the human brain works. Because what we know is that people do not like having difficult conversations. In fact, um, certain chemicals get released that, that say, no, look, this feels uncomfortable, this feels uneasy. So again, try to uh, get, get a better understanding because if you're wanting to create a culture where people are open to challenging each other and seeing each other, then you really have to understand how the social brain works. Fatigue and stress and urgency, these last two really dictate how vulnerable we are to all of these hazards, if you think about it. So if we feel, if we feel fatigued, which research says most of us are cognitively fatigued, we don't, we're not getting enough sleep and you know, rest and whatnot in 2019 as we did back then, again, because our life is just continues to get more and more complex, as well as urgency. The minute we feel either one of those two, then well, what we're more likely to do is operate from the fast brain. So it goes from 40 to 50% to a lot higher. Um, our, our, we don't, we're less likely to notice or see exposures that are right in front of us when we're stressed or fatigued. Uh, we're less likely to speak up or challenge one another with the assumption that somebody else has got this. 
when our memory gets impacted. So think of a time when you're stressed out and you just cannot recall the simple things. And it's because we, there are parts of the brain that simply shut down when we're stressed. And similarly, when we're fatigued, there are parts of the brain that don't work. Now, the, what I will say is in terms of all of these seven, six of the seven really we tackle them in a certain way. Uh, fatigue is, is handled a little differently. And why is that? Because fatigue is often a precursor to everything else. So you, if you don't understand some of the fatigue challenges that exist within your workplace, well, I encourage you to start understanding them. If people are working 14, 15, 16 hours a day, it's, it's good for you to understand how many days they can work up until the point where they just hit that exhaustion. Because we know microsleeps uh, next to highway driving, they, they happen most commonly in the workplace. So think of it, microsleep, think of it as, um, the, you know, people driving with the lights on, but nobody's really home. So that connection is not happening. And the other thing that we often do with, in terms of these brain-centered hazards is we'll often look at incident, um, incident descriptions. And I can tell you we do this all the time. So we'll often get a sample of incidents from any given organization, and that will tell us where these brain-centered hazards are occurring. And what's very interesting is oftentimes 50, if not even more percent of those, um, every, any given incident is attributed to more, more than one hazard. So while these hazards are independent of one another, they're also inter, inter, interdependent, if you will. So we see examples of that. So that's a good way to, if you're interested in these brain-centered hazards, get an understanding of where and how they manifest in your organization. Now, I mentioned um, I'll be talking about vision and memory. And so what I will say about vision and memory is that we don't see with our eyes exactly as it says there. So we know from research that has been done on tracking ocular patterns that we don't see with our brain. Our brains direct our eyes on what to look for and pay attention. The second point is our brains don't record everything they see. So unlike, pop, contrary to popular belief, years ago we used to think, well, you know, our, our, our eyes act like uh, computer operating machines. We take in information, we process that information, then we have deliberate action. Well, that's not actually what happens here. Uh, and our brains don't record everything they see. Our brains will selectively attend to the information it wants to attend to, which really brings me to the third point, which is that what we see matches our expectations. Now, think of it this way. You, there's an individual, say you have, well, most of us drive the same pattern, same path uh, every single day to work, to and from work. Now, if you're driving the same path every single day and say you get to a certain intersection and that intersection always has, the light is always green. Now, we've seen incidents like this happen where train companies, the light is that specific intersection is always green and you know what, the one-off time, it's red and there's a now an accident because they, the train driver has hit somebody. And when they go back and ask that train driver, well, why is it that you ran through that intersection? And they say, well, the light was green. It's always green. And that individual, for them, they can swear that that's what they saw because that's what the brain predicted to see and that's what it interpreted. And in fact, that wasn't the case. So, you know, when I mentioned our eyes can deceive us, this is how they can deceive us. Now, the other thing that we know from ocular patterns and how we track and how we see information is we often attend to information that's in the foreground, stuff that's right in front of us. What that means is stuff that's far in a distance or on the side, we tend not to pay attention to those things. The other thing is we don't readily notice changes in our environment. Now, if you think about even for ourselves, we, uh, we tend not to notice when our eyesight, so as we age, we, we tend not to notice that our eyesight is getting worse or that the environment or machines that we operate or equipment that we operate every day is, is, um, is withering away. So if you think about the tires on our cars, how often do we do a, a walk around to check whether those tires are now all of a sudden losing pressure? Now we're reliant on systems to tell us that, but you know, if you think about all the other little things, even in your house, at work, that you, you may interact with, but you just don't notice because it's a small changes, we're less likely to notice them. And although we, you know, we're, we're, we're particularly bad at noticing small changes, we're also pretty bad at noticing big changes oftentimes as well. Now, the last one is we don't recall information in the same way. So I mentioned to you guys that our memory system is not as good as we think it is. So we think we learned something, we're going to recite it back in the exact same way. Well, that's not actually true. 
Don, I wanted to bring right. you into the conversation about uh, the process that's described in this slide here. Uh, Don, can you give us an example of, of where our eyes have deceived us? I can give you a lot of examples, but I had a recent one that, that really just brought this out for me. Is I was on a trail, uh, I was jogging, and a snake decided that it, that it, it was time to cross in front of me uh, right as I was jogging. And it was not a deadly snake, it was just a snake. It slithered in front of me, and as I was completing my jog, um, I saw stick snakes, I saw a radiator belt snake, and I saw a shadow snake. Everything that I saw that that had the appearance that it could be a snake, I interpreted as a snake until I looked at it a second time. And that what was, what was very interesting about that was how that incident triggered my brain to see things differently. I was only looking at the trail, uh, looking you know for things that would trip me up, and all of a sudden my brain went on a different mission of of seeking information and 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 looking differently at the environment. Um, and so that tells me that told me a couple of things. One is um, that I could actually trigger my brain to see the environment differently, and that's an important concept. Uh, but that's a that's a recent example. And I'm always amazed at when I look at something, uh, I I see it as different, but I take that second look and I find out that's not exactly what I thought it was. And I think we all have had that that experience of thinking we saw something and then taking a second look at look at it and saying that's not that's not it that's not a horse <laughs> that's a bench <laughs> that's a really unique example, Don. Thank you for that. And, and Rajni, I wanted to touch on something. You mentioned the term information recall a little bit earlier. Could you expand on that and tell us a little bit more about it? I absolutely can. Now, I'm just I'm just fixated on the radiator snake. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Now, Don, <laughs> just a quick question before we move on from that one. So you were primed from that point onward to see everything that had a resemblance to a snake. Is that right? That's right. So there was a radiator belt uh, uh, laying on the side of the trail, and they're black, and they're, it was curled up, and I, it was a dangerous radiator snake. And <laughs> it wasn't until I looked at it the second time that I saw it was a broken belt, um, radiator wow. belt. <laughs> now, let me ask you, so that, that was on that one jog, right? So everything that had a resemblance to a snake, that caught your eye. Now, any time so onwards, every time that you've ran since, is that have you been primed to see those things again? No, you know I thought I would be, yeah. um, and but I but it 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 didn't linger, and so mm -hmm. what I'm thinking is that I'm my habit when I'm on a trail where I'm running is is overwhelmed. I'm I'm not on a different mission. I'm I'm still worried about yeah. tripping and falling. Uh, and so it it, it has not uh, been a permanent change in the way in which I look at the environment. And that's very interesting. And you know what? That's probably typical of what we see as well. So you're primed to something for a short period of time, and you, there might be a heightened awareness. So think about, you know, cops on the road. As soon as you see a cop, that's a trigger, or people get primed to slow down. Now, that might, that behavior might only last a little bit. Same thing in the workplace. If you have a, a workplace where people are afraid of, of the managers or afraid of getting called out for something, you might notice a small shift in behavior when they say their leader's around, but then when they're gone, this behavior changes. Similarly, if you have an, a, an incident occur in the organization, there's typically a very heightened awareness, at least initially, depending on how severe it is. But if it's not so severe, you'll find that soon people will revert to those habits. Remember, we're creatures of habit. So when we could, when we can release some energy from our, our brain, we'll revert back to those habits. And, and the running example is a great one. Now, information recall. I, I, I did uh, mention Barry that I'm going to talk on this. So let me share with you guys a classic example. Now, at the start of it, we at the start of the presentation, Don shared the definition of human performance reliability, which is the accomplishment of job tasks in accordance with agreed upon standards of accuracy. What I'm going to share with you is 
the limitations in the design of an SOP. So I mentioned to you guys that it, it's in, in accordance with the, the, the standards, right? But before you guys, and what you're seeing on the screen is an example of an SOP. It's just a small example, but this is an example of, um, of an SOP and how it's typically designed. Now I can tell you this one is actually not that bad because it's designed in a table format and stuff is at least sectioned off. But if, if this is a, an SOP that you seek um, and if it looks similar to what's in your organization, then how it has challenges. And I guess from how and why, well, if you look at the, that, that SOP in this example, how is it that you're going to, people have to, remember that our brain is energy efficient. So if we're trying to look for information, we're trying to gather that information quite quickly. And what we know is that if, if we have to dig for information, the human brain does not want to do that. And we will pay attention to different things that we deem important. And as the human brain will, you know, again, it's that driven off energy efficiency, it will eventually stop using this SOP as it requires too much energy to decipher what's required. So if you think about all the requirements that they have to read, it takes too much energy to try and look for those. And the text is also too, when text is too dense, we know it's often ignored by the human brain. Now, what's an example and what, what have we done? This is just a, a very simple illustration of how you can actually visually make SOPs more brain aligned. Now, this is just a visual example. So this is one where we worked with the client and we helped them shape this. So we don't just go in and say, well, let's um, you know, take away every SOP that you have and, let's, and make it look like this. This is something that we did over a couple of days we sat with the client and we said, what are the critical things that you were trying to say in the previous, so in the previous slide? What are the critical points that you wanted to get at? In this case, they wanted to make the purpose clear. They wanted to make note of any staffing requirements, of any PPE requirements, of tools and documents. And so in this, you can see here, it's very clearly outlined. And, and it's, uh, the cues are, are used or used judiciously. So you don't have those staff, that icon every single place. But when, you, when people see that icon, now they're primed to look for that information. So it makes it easier to act in accordance with the standards, this type of uh, procedure at least. And Rajni, I wanted to ask you a question regarding what we're seeing on the mm -hmm. screen here. Is it as simple mm -hmm. as, as redesigning the visual layout of the SOP? It absolutely is not, Barry. So it may, on the surface, it may look simple. Um, but as I mentioned, we, this often takes a couple of days. So one, the one thing that we, with, that we do and we do any time we're with the client is we first off have to educate as to why it is that previous example is not brain aligned. So what we'll do is we, you know, we, we will provide people the why. So if I just go into an organization and I say your SOPs are written with error, people will say, well, what do you mean? And so what we do is we provide the education around, well, why is, how is it that the human brain interprets information? How does the memory system work? So we provide um, clients, first off, with a deeper understanding as to why visually and why design, the design of the SOP has to look differently. So we do that. And then the other thing is we work um, hand in hand with them. And so we'll often bring in um, SOP writers and we say, okay, well, what are the critical few? What is this SOP trying to tell us? And I just had a discussion with a client not too long ago and they said, we have the best SOP you can think of because we've been refining it for 10 years now. And I said, great, uh, can I have a look at it? And they said, well, the document's quite, kind of big. And now we're up to about 60 pages. Like, okay. So you've been refining it to the point that you just keep adding in information and how much of that is useful. So this is where we, we go through the, it's not only the design, but how it's written. So oftentimes, and you guys may all relate to this, but SOPs are written by people that are not typically doing the work. So sometimes, a lot of times they're very technical in nature, but you, if an engineer is the one that's writing these, you can expect everybody to understand what they're saying. Sometimes engineer talk is different to reality and how people actually interpret stuff in the field. So uh, it takes a lot more effort than just what I'm illustrating. What I'm showing you is a very quick example of how visually it could, you can make things more eye appealing and more appealing to the human brain, but there's a lot more effort that's required, but you know it's worth it. Because again, if you go back to that definition of 
we want people to do things the exact same way every single time, well, you have to set up your procedures and systems so that they are brain aligned. So let's, All right. let's so, talk yeah. a little bit. Oh, go ahead, Raji. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to throw it over to you, Don, to talk about the fast brain. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, so before I talk about the fast brain and situational awareness, um, a couple of things I want to mention. Uh, we are not going to fix the brain. The I think that you know it's important to understand. If we think about hazards, if we ask you questions about physical hazards and your level of understanding about how physical hazards um, and and safety results tie together, I think everybody on this call would have been rating they they understand it very well and they'd wonder why they're on the call. Now the concept of brain-centered hazards is really no different. It's just a new set of hazards that we as safety professionals need to understand. What we can do is shrink the number of times that those hazards come into play and and we can we can work the brain to fix the brain and that's that's really an important concept here and so our our task is not to make make brain centered hazards go away it's really to put how how do we put layers of control in place that that protect the person from that brain-centered hazard leading to an exposure, leading to an outcome. Now, the first brain-centered hazard we covered was fast brain functioning. And fast brain functioning is really our habits, as, as Rajni mentioned. And habits are unconscious processing. It means that the decision-making, the, the work is going on in the background, and uh, we're, we're most likely not even aware that that, that decision-making and, and analytics is taking place. Now, a habit also means that we're, we're automated in that we're not really looking at the surrounding, uh, analyzing what's going on around us, and, and making a change. Instead, we're, we're just sticking to the habit. And when, our ha when we get interrupted in our habits, it, it's, it can be very disjointing because all of a sudden I'm not in fast brain mode anymore and I have to kick out and go into slow brain mode. And so a habit means there's low recognition of change and any all of us have experienced how difficult it is to change a habit. I mean, if you want to test that, if you have a, a drawer with your clothes in it, change the change the drawer that you have your socks in and see how many times and how long it, it'll take you before you, instead of your socks being in the top drawer, they're in the second drawer. Um, it, it will take months and months, and you'll, you'll still find yourself occasionally going back to the wrong drawer. That's just how powerful habits are and how our brain just loves to not have to think about things and save energy. Now, if you, if you compare that to something that uh, we're hearing a lot about, which is situational awareness. Situational awareness means that I'm discerning the elements of my environment. So I'm I'm actually understanding what's in my environment, and I'm I'm making judgments about those elements. I'm spending time comprehending their meaning. What is what does it mean that that forklift is coming through the area? Uh, how do I need to think about that? And so that's part of that recognition of their standing. And and also I'm when I'm in when I'm situationally aware, I'm I'm more susceptible to detecting change in the environment. And so if you think about these two, they're they're actually just the opposite. And and I think we unfortunately we confuse people because we talk to them about safety habits, but yet if there's an incident, we, we tell them they, they should have been situationally aware. And so there are times when it's good to be in a habit mode, uh, but there are other times where we need to be situationally aware. Yeah, Don, I, I wanted to ask, in, in 
relation to this topic in particular, it would appear that, that habit and situational awareness are at odds a little. Um, are there examples where habits are a good thing? So in, in the area of safety, um, habits are a good thing when 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 things are pre- are predictable and they're they're predictable very long term and you know for example and and oftentimes uh in this in this area of safety where habits become uh acceptable is when the the actual action or the behavior that the person uh, is doing um is fully enabled. So if you if you think about getting in your car, I really don't want you to have to spend 10 minutes thinking about putting on a seatbelt, all the steps that are required to do that, the reasoning for that. I'd just love you to get in the seatbelt. <laughs> there's no harm. You put that seatbelt on, that, that's, there's no harm. So in those instances where where the habit has no is not going to be harmful in the area of safety, like putting on PPE. Um, it that's where it's um, that it's desirable. Now, I will also say that that there's there's problems with that. There there are if you think about driving and you pull up to a stop sign, left, right, left. Now we would love people to look left, look right, look left before they proceed. But what happens is people look left, look right, look left, but they never see anything. So they, they're going through the motion, but they're not actually situationally aware. And, and so even a habit, a safe habit of left, right, left, before I cross, uh, I can actually make dangerous because I, I do forget why is it that I'm turning my head left, right, left. That's a really good example, Don. Thanks. And Rajni, I wanted to ask you, um, we see in in a lot of investigations where a cause is lack of situational awareness. Can we truly figure out post-event whether a person was situationally aware? Great question, Barry. And I think, I mean, we, we, we can figure out whether a person was situationally aware, but Oftentimes, as I mentioned, we review a lot of incidents, and a lot of incidents, incident descriptions themselves are flawed, if you, if you know what I mean. So people are able to write an incident description with, with little or no training, or they utilize certain, certain types of methods, like, for example, the five whys. If you use the five whys, you'll get to the root cause, but often that root cause puts blame on the individual. So there are different types of questions that you can ask. You can certainly get at whether people were situationally aware, but it's the type of question that you ask that will get you the results. So we all know it too well. If if you're expecting to hear something, then your line of questioning can get you there. So, you know, if you you want to get that, if you want to be able to pick that up, then I think your human, your, your incident investigations have to be, have to be centered on human performance. So they have to be asking the right type of questions. They have to be looking for the right type of questions. I've seen incident descriptions that say that person was situationally aware, but yet the incident description was a one-liner. So how do you decipher that? And, you know, unless they're bringing that individual that got hurt and you're asking specific questions that actually will, be, will get you to behavior and pinpoint that behavior, um, then, then, yeah, it's very difficult to pick that up. Barry, I want Thanks, to add Rajini. a comment. Sure. Barry, I want to add a Barry. I want to add a comment to that. The the thing about situational awareness and incident uh, investigations that I I almost never see, uh, which is is the frustration for me, is that what were the mechanisms that the organization had in place to increase situational awareness, and how effective were those uh, mechanisms? at the time this incident occurred. And so the problem with, you know, checking a box that the employee was not situationally aware, as Rajni said, that, that's blame. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't paying attention. That's why you got hurt. But we should have mechanisms. We have to have mechanisms that increase situational awareness, especially in those 
situations where there's life-threatening uh, or severe injury potential. And so if the investigation doesn't look at the mechanisms that we have for, for driving up situational awareness, it's an incomplete investigation. Great point, Don. Thank you. It's uh, exactly right. time for our, yeah. It's time for our next poll question for the audience. Uh, this time, we want to learn a little bit about the organizations of our audience members with this poll question. Uh, again, we'll give you all about 60 seconds to choose one of five possible answers. And our question is: What is your organization's approach to situational awareness challenges? Go ahead and tell us which one best describes your organization, and the choices are we don't have this challenge, no approach, disciplining or terminating people, reminders during job briefings, posters, and other awareness efforts, and finally, incorporation of techniques to raise awareness in the path of work. Again, we'll give you about five more seconds or so to get your submissions in. Uh, while we're getting some really excellent feedback so far, this is a very responsive group today. Um, so let's go ahead and close out the poll, and we will take a look at our results here. And it looks like we have a runaway winner. Uh, reminders during job briefings, posters, and other awareness efforts, 67 0.3%, and then coming in pretty closely together are uh, both incorporation of techniques to raise awareness in the path of work and no approach. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, Rajni, are you surprised at all by what we're seeing here from our audience members about their organizations? No, not surprised, and in fact, I commend you guys. That's great that you, are, that you have reminders of job, during job briefings, posters, and awareness efforts. I think that's fabulous. Um, now, I, what I will say is, and based on my experience, and, and Don, you, please jump in if you disagree, but I've sat through a number of job briefings. I've sat through a number of um, safety meetings uh, where people are, they're, they're reminding others to be more aware, but it's, um, it's where the, you know, a, a leader, a safety professional is standing and kind of reading off the card. So today's weather says it is really hot out there, so drink some water. And I mean, is that a is that a good enough reminder? I don't know. But if there's if there if there isn't engagement in, in that kind of safety meeting where you know the person is is reading off the temperatures, reading off the hazards, but then if you look at the audience and nobody's really paying attention, then how is that really driving awareness? So if well, the right, same message a, is being delivered every single day, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Don. Go ahead. You no, know, that's a re that's a really good point. I, I think about the signs that I see as as I drive drive around that says "Be aware, motorcycles are everywhere." Yeah. Um, yeah. I see that sign, and I don't think it has any impact on me except for I read the sign and I take a quick scan around. But it really doesn't and has not increased my awareness around looking for motorcycles, and so. So there's, there's more to it. And then the second part is that if I don't understand why you're trying to increase my awareness and and the the background information to that, it's going to have less impact as it, the, the awareness effort is, is just that. It's that moment, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, there's motorcycles around. Now I, I go right back into driving the same way that I drove. Yeah, you can't see me, Don, but I'm nodding my head profusely and agreeing. <laughs> couldn't agree with you more because that's absolutely 100% spot on because that is what we see is that if one, you know, you alluded to a lot of things. So you, you put up signs, you put up posters. Well, a lot of places are ridden with signs and posters. And, you know, if you have, they have, quite frankly, one too many. Um, if people are sharing these safety messages and sharing different things to be aware of, Again, if you're not providing the why to people, it kind of still, it just flies right by. So you have to provide the why to people. People don't understand how the brain operates. And, and it sounds simple, but if you think about all the pieces of machinery that you can get, you buy a microwave, and it comes with a booklet on how to operate it. We don't know what we don't know about the human brain, but if you don't know that you're going to be vulnerable to these hazards, well, you don't know why that information is coming at you for, for that. So if you're sitting through those safety meetings and you're looking at all these signs in your, in your environment, those signs are just going right past you. Like, yeah, I, I understood it, but you don't know the why. So 
let me just share with you briefly, I guess, the, the approach to human performance reliability. We're aware of a lot of organizations that do like a spray and pray a track when it comes to training. And yep, we provide training on, you know, on how to be people to not be complacent. Okay, well, that's great. But what we know is that a more embedded systems approach is needed for a successful human performance risk mitigation. As an example, you can provide training about internal brain hazards such as fatigue, divided attention. We encourage you to do that. But some, and some change effects, just doing that training might be noted, but if it's not supported with the systems that you're providing and the tools that you're providing, well, then it just becomes another training, and that training dies off. So we, you know, people, organizations might do well in some of these areas, but it has to be embedded. It has to be systemic. So the top one, the reason why we have executive leader at the top is because it belongs at the top. So knowledge and alignment, when you want people to make decisions, when people are in the heat of the moment, you want people to have absolute clarity in terms of how they should be making decisions. There should be alignment across the organization when you're talking about risk. People should be seeing it in the exact same way so that when they're making decisions in the heat of the moment, there again, there's alignment. Uh, middle managers and supervisors, they you know, provide them with knowledge provide them with skills on how the human brain works so that they can talk to those. So, you know, I'm sharing with you guys, and so the next time they're doing a safety brief, it's, well, the weather is it's really hot out there. I want you to stay hydrated because we know, you know, when the, when the human brain is, is not hydrated, is not fatigued, you won't think clearly. So that's providing another layer into why they need to be drinking water, as an example. Workforce. Um, you know, we talk about situational awareness, but what does that mean? Take people through the four phases of human action. Teach them how the, the human vision system works. I mean, are you, do you have to make them neuroscientists? No. Do you have to make them psychologists? No, but provide people the why. Um, how they see, what are the limitations in that? How the interpretation, what are the limitations in that? And similarly, thinking and how do you encourage people Look, we, when you're going to have a conversation with somebody, it's going to be difficult. We know it's going to be difficult, but provide them the tool on how to do that effectively. Brain Align System, the SOP that, I, that we shared with you guys, is one, one way. Um, the other way is have your job training. Design job training so that it sticks, so that it's meaningful, so that it's embedded. Um, have uh, your safety enabling systems. Have them be more brain aligned. So, all of these things pretty much have to kind of act in unison, and that's how you get human performance reliability. So thinking back to that definition that Don shared at the, at the start, the only way you're going to get it is to be more systemic and to have these layers of, of protection approach. Right. Don, I wanna, wanna, yeah, I yeah. want to drill down to, uh, you know, what, what Roshni was talking about is, is if you, you step back and you have to look at the whole of the system, and, and that's what we mentioned um, earlier. There is this challenge that still exists where we go into organizations and leadership gets it. They understand they're, they're fulfilling their role. The systems are, are really pretty well aligned, but yet mistakes are made, and, and people are very frustrated trying to figure out, well, the, the piece that they've often missed is really helping that individual employee uh, build capabilities and, and build a defensive layer for that person. And it is possible to, to teach people to see more, to process information differently, and to go through the steps of a, of a procedure or an operation more reliably. Now, part of that is educating people about the brain. The brain is fascinating. People want to understand it. Uh, it we, we find people get it. They, they get very interested in it because it's so personal. What you have to do is you have to teach people techniques that cause them to interrupt the way in which their brain wants to work. And so my snake example is a great example. Um, if you think about a job safety briefing, do you have your people on a mission to, to see specific hazards or serious in, injury and fatality exposures? Are we, are we giving people an opportunity to think about the environment they're in? We, we, 
we did this process with uh, drivers who were getting in and out of their truck, their delivery drivers. And as you think about their job, the person that's doing that job, one moment they're a driver, the next moment they are a delivery person that's out of that truck and, and delivering product to, to a customer or to a home. Well, each time that they transition from one job to the next, they have to reprogram their brain from, I'm not delivering anymore, <laughs> I'm a driver, and what are my exposures? And, and thinking through what, what are the exposures and how are they going to protect themselves. And then there are techniques for when you're in the middle of a task, especially a, a task that, that has life-threatening uh, potential related to it if you, if you have a misstep, there are techniques to teach people on how to stay on task. It's the old measure twice, <laughs> cut once uh, type of methodology, talking to yourself, talking through uh, how you're going to do the process. And then finally, if you're working in a team, you have to, you, you cannot individually see all of the, the brain-centered hazards. You're not going to be aware of them all. Your teammates will see things that you're not aware of. Are we creating an environment where we're seeking information, we're seeking support from our team, and have we set up a, you know, a, this mini culture where it's okay for somebody to ask questions and it's okay to uh, have someone question the, the reason in which we're, we're making the decision that we're making? Thanks so much, Don. I appreciate that. And great job today, Don and Rajni. We appreciate you sharing your, your insights and expertise. We've got time for one brief question uh, during our Q&A portion here today. And uh, before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete today. The survey should be appearing on your screen right now. Your input is really important to us because it will help us uh, to improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, uh, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking on the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Um, if, we, if we don't get to your question today, they will be forwarded on to our speakers, so please know that. Uh, also, don't forget about the resources button on your screen. That's where you can find that exclusive article that Dacre OSR just released today for our audience, along with a terrific ebook that they've put together. Um, so, Don, I wanted to ask you really quickly here: um, Can we really get people to see more things? Absolutely. I, I think I think the the issue with all of this is that we sometimes convince ourselves that that it's not possible. Um, and you know my I think my snake example is is a good example of I was primed to see things differently, and we can use priming um, as a vehicle for getting people to to view the world and actually go out on seeking missions to see the world differently the The last point I want to make around situational awareness is that we have to understand we are not physically able to be situationally aware. 100% of the time. The amount of energy that would be required to do that is beyond what, uh, what our body is capable of delivering. And, and so it's important that these triggers that we provide people, these techniques that we provide people, trigger them to be situationally aware at the right moment. And the, the, the other point is that it is okay to interrupt habits. In fact, we shouldn't ever have a habit where the, we, we don't question why is it that we're doing what we're doing. We need to help people question the why. That's a great point, Don. Yeah, thank you so much. And Don and Rajni, thanks again for all your insight today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for today's webinar. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's question, but as I mentioned, all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers today. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback, and also check out those resources that DACRA OSR has provided for you today. Uh, that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our speakers, Don Groover and Rajni Walia, the entire team at Dacre OSR, and all of you who listened in today. Everyone, thanks again for, for joining us, and have a safe day. Thanks, everyone.